Good evening. Welcome to the University of Sydney. I'm Professor Anne-Marie Jagos, Head of the School of Literature, Art and Media, which houses among its departments and programs the Department of Media and Communications. To begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Their ancestral lands stretch from South Head at the entrance to Sydney Harbour to Petersham, about four kilometres from here up Parramatta Road. It's upon the Gadigal people's ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we think tonight about the quick twitch micro time frames of our modern news cycle, we also recognise the much longer duration of 60,000 years of Indigenous knowledge. Our Sydney Ideas event this evening is co-presented with the Australian Press Council and the Department of Media and Communications at the University of Sydney. In the School of Literature, Art and Media, we're really proud of our multi-layered partnership with the Australian Press Council, which includes Press Council colleagues giving guest lectures to our students, the Press Council funding prizes for the best student essays every year in media, law and ethics, and our researchers Associate Professor Tim Dwyer and Dr Fiona Martin undertaking commissioned research for the Council around trends in online and cross-media cross news production. Both the current Chair of the Australian Press Council, Professor David Weisbrot, and the Director of Policy and Research, Michael Rose, are former staff members of this university. Another University of Sydney alumnus is David Maher, who will be chairing our event this evening. An arts law graduate, David was awarded an honorary doctorate by the university in 2013. Well known to many of us here, David is a journalist, a writer, and a progressive political and social commentator whose areas of expertise include the law, politics, censorship, the media, and the arts. He writes for The Monthly, The Saturday Paper, and Guardian Australia, and he's a familiar face to many of us from ABC television programs, Q&A, and insiders, and we're delighted to be in his hands this evening. What's the announceable is the name of our session tonight. But if you're a literalist like me, you might also be thinking, what is the announceable? Knowing full well how often we coin words to try and capture new or emergent concepts and practices whose implications and meanings are not yet fully clear to us. If you search for this word, announceable, in the online Oxford English Dictionary, it comes back empty-handed, but with a Dr Seuss-style question of its own. Did you mean <coughs> renounceable, bounceable, pronounceable? I can't think of anyone better to hand over to at this point than our national wordsmith, David Maher. Thank you so much, Mary. I'm, I'm appalled that I am going to show up distinguished academics failures of research in only two seconds time. We're talking tonight about a world where government has never been as skilled at handling the press, and where reporters have never been as hungry for stories, and where both of them, government and press, are working around the clock. And this, I hope, will become a wider conversation pretty quickly about the state of relations these days between the government and now this morning, I took aside our two distinguished international guests, Anand Sohan 
and my kahana and asked them if they knew what an announcement was and didn't. So I'm talking to them now, and when I say that you should look in the Macquarie because the word was accepted by the Macquarie in 2011. It was the same year that the Macquarie accepted the key, the combination of the key and frame. That was the year that Frank went into the dictionary. Announceable, says the Macquarie, a noun, an item made public by a government, usually in a media release as good publicity for the government or as a distraction from bad publicity. <laughs> James Button, who wrote a really beautiful book called Speechless, a year in my father's business, about being a speechwriter for Kevin Martin, had have this paragraph in there talking about writing speeches for Rudd. There were words to avoid. Words like crucial, but critical was fine. Don't say problems, say challenges. At all costs, never use the word issue. He hated it. Every speech had to have an announceable. A new initiative usually involving spending. The announceable had to be the first third of the speech when people, and especially the media, were likely to be attention. So, there are those who say that feedbacks were simply unannounceable. But, let's talk about it. Let's talk about all of this tonight. And let's begin with Bob Carr, who is, of course, a former journalist. His grounding in politics comes from a solid grounding in journalism. Former Premier of this state, and the man who has had the most intimate involvement with the press over a number of years of time. Anything I say is going to be trivial compared with what Anna and Mama can explain to us. Utterly trivial. And let me just say that I honour and respect the journalists who operate in the environment where they very bravely operate and fight as they're forced to fight. The principles that we politely take for granted. What I've got to say is trivial compared to the lives in journalism. It really is. Anyone enjoyed West Point? <laughs> and the best episodes were, were the prophetic ones dealing with the Sandbox candidacy. There was a minority candidate, Hispanic, a congressman from Texas, winning the endorsement of the Democratic Party. And becoming a candidate for president against a very formidable Republican opponent. But in one episode, he's in despair. He wants to talk to America seriously about American schools. He wants to make an issue out of education. But the media willfully, obstinately, focus on what's happening in the campaign that day. Where is the latest poll? What mistake is Vice President Obama make? Made to the Democratic candidate's industry, and his advisor says, Congressman, you imagine this is about substance. It's about process. It's always going to be about process. That's the nature of the campaign. For those of us in government, those of us in government, there's just 
a boiling frustration that policy gets lost, that the media is not interested in it. The 2003 election campaign, we wanted to our announcement on the edge of the campaign was that a large area of Western Sydney was going to be reserved under our plan for industrial development. There'd be staged job growth there in land reserved for industrial development, so significant that over the next decade, the characteristic journey in Sydney from home to work would be not west to east, but east to west. What could what be more of the heart of life in Sydney than bringing jobs to where people live, great Woodlawn, you're a concept. So I'm ready, Mark Bogomorne, it's going to be a busy day in the campaign to make the announcement on the site. I walk past Mark Bogomorne, so some journalists are still having their breakfast, I walk past two of them, both eating soggy rolls, washed down with cans of full strength coat coffee. I say to them, these young women, uh, journalists of the Sydney Telegraph, what a shocking way to start the day. The soggy rolls, fat wrapped in fat, washed down. By intense concentrations of sugar and forgot all about it. Forgot all about it and went on to make the announcement. The next morning, waking up, my hand reaches back and puts on the radio on the bed with and catches the 530 news. And all of a sudden, I, I hear the Premier of New South Wales, believe I, being reported as having launched an unpatriotic denunciation of the Australian Southern Cross. <laughs> First of all, I thought that premium must be an idiot. Then realised it was me that was talking about, and then knew in a flash what had happened to Telegraph and run this, and this lead election story. I began this minute of arguing with my media secretary, Hussein uh, Premier. Uh, the TV are on to this. Today you will have to eat. I slammed the phone down. Ten minutes later, the penny dropped. I rang her back. I said, okay, we'll compromise. There's a pie shop in my electorate run by a local football person. I will go there, we'll do the media conference there today. They're all insisting on it and tell me. We'll do the media conference today and I will eat a meat pie with soup. But I will not eat a sausage roll. Media Watch, probably run by you, gave a talk in 2003. Yes. Um, Typically <laughs> <laughs> smart, Alec. Uh, he makes it look so simple. Got a boring election campaign on your hands? Then throw the meat pie stuff. Started with a silly story in the Telegraph, cars attack on sausage rolls, the issue of food based ways of the campaign, etc., etc. It's a throwaway line on the campaign trail, but once it was out there, car seized the opportunity. He called the press corps to a pie shop in his electorate and fronted the cameras. I reckon anyone faced with a choice between this and the sausage rolls would go for this. It's not more Australian choice anyway. This is our, our national dish. It's a lead item. We're all seen in the I had been rivaled months later the Telegraph accused me of having called the people by running out a re-election campaign based on cricket. I was there with a 
substantial policy announcement and a media to prove on I found it impossible as Premier to get ABC TV News to ever run an education school. An issue on new testing, which was started high schools, or reading recovery programs. There was a sudden resistance to the ABC yet to ever run such a story on the TV news. We have used in January 2003 the world's first cover trading scheme. That's not an exaggeration. The World Bank makes it, and it was two years earlier from the European carbon trading scheme that applied to the electricity generation sector in our economy. Uh, a major policy issue. There was no media interest in it. None. I, um, I found that as Premier, um, a huge story because of incompetent media management on our part on some occasions will get no coverage. So a colossal expansion of the National Park scheme uh, system in New South Wales on the eve of the 1999 election was thrown away by incompetent people in the, the minister's office who just put it out there. Instead of preparing the media, producing videos that offered TV footage of the areas we were protecting. I was curious about the media, but with our incompetence at selling the story. When, um, when I organised the initiative after my 2003 election win to lift the standard of urban design where it applied to, applied to residential flat construction and couldn't get any coverage in the Herald. It was our fault, it was our fault, we were not preparing the Herald for it, but not lining up a call from me days in advance to the editor and seeing the role of journalists pay a lot. I should have sat staff for not doing that, for just putting out a lazy announcement, having the state correspondent turn up, and then lose interest as the architects and the planners and the designers, and I was cheering it, got into the heart of this. Blair and Clinton expressed their raging frustration. Let me share this quote from Blair. With the stubborn refusal of media, this is a boring right for the political class. This is how we see it in our war with the media. Here's how they put it. He said, the media has become more geared to sensation, scandal, and impact. So the politicians have packed to look for more devices and strategies to generate interest. I came to the sad conclusion through the 2001 campaign, this is Blair, that the best I could hope for was that underneath some whiz-bang piece of marketing creativity, or twist to a story, we might squeeze some policy. But there was never any chance of having a policy out there at center stage. There are exceptions. For example, when we, after our 99 election, uh, took a tentative step towards a medically supervised injection room in the trust, action went forward, it was opportunity, but we introduced the public to, to a, uh, this policy. There was acute media interest, acute media interest, and there's nothing, there's nothing more fulfilling to a career politician the opportunity to sit down in a TV or radio studio and tease out in some detail a complex policy proposition. So I can say to Kerry O'Brien, no, it means this. It's not a heroin trial, it's not a in the drug, it's not a heroin 
but we're, we're, we're enabling drug users to come into the streets and the car parts of King's Cross. We need national supervision or a non-government body fund, that's the, the masters of business. We'll do this, we won't do that. Mainstream system survey, this is what it means. That, that is the sheet of what? That, that is, the, that is the, the thrill of being a political leader. I've spoken too long. At one Catholic meeting, I'll conclude with this story. One Catholic meeting, one of my colleagues began on the myth about the leader. Allowed to go on for the statutory three sentences. I said, listen, I'm closing down this discussion. This is a problem without an answer. Nothing can be done about it. So we stop complaining about it, we live with it, and we seek by one device or another, through the sheer craft that a politician, a professional politician, should be able to command to get our case across and live in an environment, as Blair and Clinton did, where trivia and scandal and sensation are the dominating forces, but where through craft, the craft of the career politician, you can sometimes yank the debate and get it into a serious space. That's my perspective, David, but there is nothing more positive, nothing more important. And I have a kind invitation to give an Andrew Lolly Memorial Lecture because I think this subject that invites politicians or others to express grievances about the media is terribly important. I want to conclude as I started. Nothing we say about the frustrations and the strains of dealing with the media in a democracy rival the challenges that exist for the media the jurisdictions of our business company. And I honor them, and I respect them, but this is by far the more serious and interesting matter. Well, thank you for that. Um, we could have a moment of interest now when I let down your throat, um, but we're going to, I'm going to hold my tongue, because I know that from history, at the end of this, at the end of this waiting, um, to engage, engage with you on some of your um, claims. Um, and some of your experiences. Um, and I wouldn't underestimate at all the dangers of reporting to Quarry Street and Sydney, which is how we return to the New York world. Um, your dangers are of another order. <laughs> and next figure, Anna Tola, who reports Russia as a freelancer for the West. Um, and how does any of that resonate with you as a reporter? As a reporter of Russia, you should see this man on a horse without his shirt on. Hello, everybody. Thank you for, for, for a chance to be here with you in Australia. It's my first time on the continent. And uh, I would speak, we just need to turn a few pages and go to the world section, Eastern Europe. So I'm bringing you to, to Russia. I covered not just Russia, but also former Soviet states, Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, Armenia, and a few others. Um, and recently, uh, Turkey, too. There is a conflict between Russia and Turkey. Some words are unpronounceable and unannounceable. Uh, That's true. A few years ago, Pussy Riot were a huge story in Russia. 
Um, if you remember, there's a band of Angloans who sang a song about Putin in church, and they were arrested for that, put in jail. Uh, and nobody in the Kremlin pronounced the name of that band, really. They tried to avoid uh, the name. But uh, by the end of the game, the Sochi wins the the game, Putin's wives were out of jail. And they were in Sochi. Uh, so, in front of all the cameras, they performed once again, and they were whipped by nationalists. They were attacked and whipped by nationalists. I reported the story from Newsweek magazine, and uh, once again, Russian news completely avoided the episode, because the story was supposed to be fun and positive and nice about the Olympic Games, and not about the skills. So all law enforcement um, units were out that day chasing those girls on the TV. But Russian television uh, viewers didn't see that. After the Olympic Games, we had an avalanche, uh, avalanche of news. We had the Maidan revolution in Ukraine. I was there on the square when the square was burned. And the people were still right in the middle of this European peace. And after the revolution, there was Crimea crisis. Uh, and once again, the world played very important roles. Uh, Journalists who used the word annexation covering Crimea crisis were uh, treated as foreign agents, pro-Western journalists, journalists who were against the Crimean uh, line. And same here in, in Moscow, uh, in Russia, didn't use the word annexation. So uh, Maidan revolution also created a lot of language, different words. In state media, we um, often see that there was a military coup, another revolution in, uh, in Kiev. And that uh, who is in power now are in Hungary, and not legitimate uh, governments in Ukraine. So this word marks, uh, you can read newspapers and, and see immediately who is in which camp. And unfortunately, coming from the time of old school, I worked for the Washington Post for several years before Newsweek. I, I was a fixer and researcher for uh, the Washington Post in Moscow. That's how I started. I came to the front lines in Chechnya and covered the Chechen war. That was my first story. And then already as a writer for Newsweek, I, I traveled to Georgia during the war in 2008. Um, and now I go back and forth between uh, the pro-Russian rebel Frontline from the side of the frontline and Ukrainian covering Ukrainian war. So I thought, well, the crisis and human rights story was my priority um, always. I uh, I feel in pain when I hear this kind of rhetoric that you're either too pro-Western or too pro-Russian or anti-Russian. These words are painful to hear because. You want to do your job. You want to tell the story, an important story. You want to go um, to the to the field, be with people, and, and tell that story. And that's how you always saw your your role. So this is in short. I know I, I think I've talked forever about Russian news. Really. We have a war. We have um, Muslim killing ISIS. You know, Syria in Russia was not on news. And of course, Putin is the biggest story. Uh, if you look at the headlines, you find stories on the Middle East or foreign policy, and it's 
almost always put in and perhaps, you know, do we call Russia a dictatorship? I lost. I lost. Well, sorry, Terry. Regimes. Do you know what part of Terry's regime actually don't have to be an absolutist to the press? You just do what Terry does. And even for someone like democracy, being an absolutist to the press is that. Or is the Russian press fair? Fair bits and pieces in this way. Well, see, I've never worked for, for a Russian newspaper, uh, but uh, I sympathize, I really sympathize with, uh, with, the, with the suggestion that Russian journalists have to see. Here's how the mechanism works. I can explain to you, it's very simple. Uh, and very similar to what it used to be during Soviet Union. In Soviet Union, there were only a couple of major things. and they affected enough. Uh, and my father worked for, for Brahma, he was a Now we have uh, thousands of newspapers in online publications, and they belong to thousands of owners. It's not like in Australia. So there are many, many different owners of publications and television channels. Uh, the major television channels are stable, and they allow for programming. And every week, all chief editors go for a briefing to Putin's uh, And that's where it's decided which newspaper covers which news. Um, it's interesting that they, they distribute the news. So this, this newspaper is going to talk about this and that, and then we have business here, they will cover So uh, we still have independent newspapers in Russia, very few, and many, many independent online publications. Uh, my friends don't read. Newspapers. They, 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 read, they try to read news online, but not many people do that. See, in Russia, they poor people who don't have computers and they um, get the news from television. 80% actually of population, around 80%. But something like that, of course, should rely on Australia on television for most of their news in a high sense. That's not so different here. Um, no, not I don't want to be back. Um, but it does sound to me as though those formal conferences of Kremlin um, are, are announceables in sort of gilded, gilded formality. But we, we will be back. Because our next speaker is Nadu uh, Jahan, who, who reports the biggest democracy in the world from Delhi. From from a family of journalists um, who was associated with founding the BBSA. And amongst other things these days, runs an online critique of the press called News Laundry, which sounds very much, which sounds very like media watch to me. Um, ladies and gentlemen. For that, I, I would introduce News Laundry as a phrase in, in our language, in Hindi, which can be translated that we wash everyone. But it's also a pun, which means that we destroy everyone. <laughs> so it's something like everyone gets washed, everyone also gets destroyed. But first, I would like to thank Mr. Carr for making me feel so much at home. Um, <laughs> it sounded like 
all our politicians uh, who complain about the press not covering what they want us to cover, talking on and on, <laughs> no jokes, nothing entertaining, just a lot of whining. I'm not Yes, a little half We have to keep it gentle. Um, the media will not follow or uh, cover what politicians like because when you announce I can't talk about Australia, but I will tell you about India. When politicians do the announceables, and it was explained to me by David this morning, everyone in India, including every villager, maybe even an illiterate villager, just talks. Announceable. Deliver first, then we cover it. What are the announceables? We don't need them. They, they just keep announcing. What, do you know how many times the Ganga? Our river has the the river Ganga has been ostensibly cleaned. That announcement started in Indira Gandhi's time in 1972. <laughs> 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 it's still not clean. So nobody nobody's taking announcement seriously. And nor should the press, I think. I think we what we should take seriously is what is delivered and what is not delivered. And it is our job to focus that when you announce something, you don't deliver, that's what we focus on. That's our job. We're not a PR agency. We'll hold there for the moment, but I'm hoping the warfare will soon break out. Because the fourth member of the panel uh, is Tom Dubik, and of course, um, if his face isn't familiar to you, his byline certainly is. Um, in this city, as one of the finest journalists we've got in this town. And his memoir has just been published, Whole Wild World um, Has Hit the Streets. Tom. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, the announceable is over. There's no sizzle in that sausage. <laughs> <laughs> it was a party fad that still appears on some menus because the chefs don't have a clue what else to do. It's going the way of the tacos. It's the full pork of politics. Unlike those staples of Aussie culture, Thai chicken curry, barbecue green lamb, and according to the uh, friends of my daughter who goes to this university, halal snack packs. <laughs> the Laura Tingle wrote in the Financial Review the other day about Malcolm Turnbull's submarines announcement. Political staff work on the presumption that nothing in politics has a short life of more than 24 hours anymore, so you might as well just move on. Ready to soak the new cycle boiler with new coffee on a different subject. One day a shipyard, next day a car yard, then a childcare centre, followed by a hospital and a high-tech precinct. Hell, at this rate, one day the PM's entourage may even sneak back on campus. The announceable, denuded and distressed, has had its day. As we discuss these issues in the Australian context, we are blessed to be sharing a theatre with Robert John Carr, the Gordon Ramsay of saucy news ingredients, cooking <laughs> up the storm and playing it up for the punters. 
I'm not here to mock Bob or to denounce him, not to bury him with contumely. I just want to give him his due in being the master chef of fast food politics during his 10 years as Premier of this state. <laughs> Bob is that rare bird. He has the political smarts and brutality of Sussex Street, as we call the locust of Labor might and power in this state, as well as a unique sensitivity to the quiet, desperate lives of journalists. <laughs> in the hunt for a story, any story, Bunny can spare a yarn. <laughs> he worked the political media dynamic with relish and aplomb. I once seen a magazine profile of him. When Carlos Premier, I wrote, no local tabloid editor or shock jock could match his populism, attentiveness, or energy. Michael Egan, a close colleague of Bob's who was treasurer of the state, said Carl was essentially a teacher in temperament and style. He wanted to move public opinion to, quote, bend it to his will. Bob dominated the political scene. That's what a leader wants to do. During his decade as Premier, and we'll go to our brains dueling out of this, Bob became preoccupied with the message, reform shy and bored by state politics. He passed the baton to a dysfunctional group of amateurs and miscreants who fumbled to win an election on the utter hopelessness of beliefs. <laughs> As Bob told me in that story four years ago, his successors, three premiers in the following six years, lacked the pizzazz and wit to cash in on his reforms. Bob spawned imitators. In Queensland, it was self-described media tart, Peter Beattie, <laughs> he would have eaten the sausage roll, the pie, <laughs> the chicken, uh, and moved on to the sawdust I had a plate of curry. I had a plate of curry. And media Mike ran in South Australia, who kept winning elections even though voters were somewhat wise to their spinning ways. The Zenith of governing in this way, or Nadia for its effect on policy debate, came during the first Rudd government. Like his predecessor, John Howard, Kevin Rudd used the tools of media brilliantly to get elected. He'd been the Sunrise Kid on, he'd been the sunrise kid on breakfast television. He was liked on his feet in a dirty way and sought out FM radio and soft TV talk shows. But Rudd did not know how to govern, or if he did, he broke every one of the golden rules of success. Keep your promises, be consistent, consult with your cabinet. Rudd's hyperkinetic need to feed the media beast, no question too small for this Prime Minister, distracted him from policy, estranging him from his colleagues and ultimately voters. At the time, George Nicola Genius at the Australian wrote Rudd had morphed into Australia's first federal premier. A new start every day, but without a legacy. Privately, his ministers loved the description, but could not change Rudd's ways, so they whacked him. 
And what went wrong with Labor internally and externally, as Rudd's successor Julia Gillard said on the night after the June 2010 coup, the government had lost its way. Cabinet processes had been debased. The quality of policy work suffered. Turned out that failures were of a different kind, now being well documented in books about a short-lived, insipid tenure. The sloganeering oppositionist was caught frozen in the headlights of the top job. He could neither explain his policies nor be himself, other than in the monstrosities of what came to be known as captain's picks, such as a Michael to Prince Philip. This is obviously a sprint through recent history. Of course, all this dysfunction arose further trust in the political system at a time when many of the institutions of national life are under immense pressure to retain their authority, prestige and relevance, from the churches to newspapers, even rugby league and AFL clubs. Bernie Fraser, one of the most experienced government officials this country has ever produced, Secretary for the Treasury and Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, has made several damning observations about the current political class in Canberra in response to Laura Pingle's most recent quarterly essay, Political Amnesia. Ministers in their shadows relish the endless opportunities to blather on about their portfolios. Most recycle old assertions and slogans. Rarely do they admit new information. Fraser believes the community would be better served if the ministerial time and effort now devoted to such trivial pursuits were redirected to getting on top of real issues and to commit and to forging sustainable policies in the cabinet room. Can things be improved? Do citizens want something better? Of course, but it's difficult to see how a revival will occur given the pressures we are all under. So many parts of our political system have been disrupted or are falling apart, media platforms included. Around the bridges, there are new movements seeking to change the way we do politics to take the professionals out of the game and to invest in citizens' juries and deliberative power and policy. In terms of governing, the Prime Minister pledged to restore order to the coalition government when he deposed out of last September. And what a standoff he gave the man who toppled him in December 2009 to join the Liberal Party. He said that it failed to provide the leadership required for economic revitalisation and business confidence. We need a style of leadership, Turnbull declared, that explains the challenges and how to seize the opportunities, that respects people's intelligence. We need advocacy, not slogans. Turnbull vowed to kill the Stimmeister's supremacy, to promote a culture of better processes, more consultation and less blather. Adult government, anyone? Although we've heard such lines before, they all start with good intentions. Turnbull is mined in the same mess as his predecessors, but the game keeps getting faster. Now we have the exploding grab bag of a federal budget in an election year. Hey, look over there, a tax cut for small business. The three-word slogans, jobs and growth, jobs and growth, jobs and growth. What about those greedy retirees? Slugger. What, me worrying about debt and deficit? Here comes election 2016. The beast needs to eat, so stoke the boiler. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, um, my challenge is this. 
why can't do this? Why can't the media report the introduction for the first time in Australia, the first time in the world, of a carbon trading scheme, January 2003? Because it's hard. It's hard to explain that the state government is imposing an element on what electricity retailers in New South Wales can generate in terms of greenhouse gases and forcing them, when they see that limit, to introduce offsets. The first in the world. And by the way, Kevin Bryant had come to government in 2007 and had taken that steam, digging over successfully in New South Wales, and said, that's our starting point for light industries. Auto, steel, aluminium. So each year, we would have had, without agitation, carbon pricing. And when, when Tom can say carbon government could reform shy, it's because without me noticing, I had privatised TAB, rail freight, and coal mines. Privatisation of the previous governments hadn't attempted. And that my government, because of my, the priority I gave it, did what a coalition government, the previous Labour governments hadn't done, which was to carve the legalisms and the privileges for lawyers out of the workers' comp scheme. After the media to explain, so the Hill reported that in terms of anger, the union demonstration outside of Macquarie Street. But couldn't analyze the fact that the Labour government had wiped out Labour law firms, taking on a vested interest route to bring down the cost of workers' comp, to benefit industry and employment in New South Wales, and to see that money reached injured workers and was not appropriated by rent-seeking lawyers. A hard story to explain. But it leaves the impression that Tom just indulged a government shy of reform. The reforms went through the three big privatisations. The cutting edge private public partnerships delivered $5 billion in new roadworks, but with only an $800 million allocation from the state taxpayer. If we pioneered something that America hasn't caught up with yet, these were substantial reforms. And the introduction of a market in electricity generation in New South Wales, again, too complex for all but a few journalists to pick up and interpret. Blair, furious. Clinton, in a rage. That the media can't find ways of reporting a policy substance. Sandos, in West Wing, being told, don't expect the media to deal with policy substance. Tear up and discard your speeches about very schooling. The process will win out over substance any time. And Blair in that quote I shared with you, saying if we can get a little light shed on policy, we'll be lucky. I say to, to you, your Indian colleagues might be announced for cleaning up the Ganges, but we stopped announcing the cleaning up of the Parramatta River because it happened. And I was able to go to the people of the 2003 election and say without argument, Sydney Harbour, because we closed the North Side Storage Works, we built the North Side Storage Works, is now so clean 
that the penguins and the whales had come to me. It was done. It was done. I, I, I didn't announce something that was bogus. I went to the people and said, we delivered this. And three, 350 new national parks, that created the best national park system in the world, were declared and secured because I, Tom says, Tom invited me to lead a reform state government because I reformed forestry to free up high conservation value areas to be protected for all time. Whereas the rate like there is going, there won't be a tree left standing in any of them. Native vegetation legislation installed by me after a huge fight with farmers. Tom, a substantive reform for the sake will not allow you to clear the property, to clear the vegetation on your own property. An argument, a furious argument for the farm sector, the farm sector secured in my time. But the difficulty about easing reforms successfully onto the agenda and securing them with a bit of media deafness is that people don't know what was accomplished. And we didn't re-announce things uh, the, 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 because a part of the year wouldn't allow me to get away with it. Medically supervised injecting, and I conclude with this example, a leader of the so-called reform shy government. was established in New South Wales to this day, 16 years on, no other state government, and there must have been 20 premiers in the other states since 1999, no other state government was reformist enough to do it. Widely insane because of what a reform shy premier did, successfully leading public opinion through use of the media to introduce what was a new idea to some people, potentially. A private one. Okay. That is the bride of a politician. May I respond to Please. 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 Of Western is from fiction. Fiction. Women really like here. Real media. Real politicians. So let's talk about the real stuff. Mark points to I'll come back to interruption. So now you would be the light connection. Even if you must be Mark Twain can be. So the point over here is that you're talking about announcement and you said we would we never have to announce the cleaning of this river that you mentioned, then why are you arguing about an article? If you do the, that's my point. If you do the work, you don't have to announce it. You don't need an article if the job is done. Well, oh, no, you did an election campaign, you did that thing. Nobody needs to announce it. The electorate expects the politician to give an account of itself. A, a government, curiously, leader, to give an account of itself. And it's not unreasonable to say in this election campaign that part of our record is what we've done, these are our plans for the future. That's, that's somewhat different. But well, when you say those things were not reported, 
I remember them. I wrote some of those stories. Uh, I was on the staff of the Herald. I mean, we wrote about your um, pioneering and very welcome, as it happened, um, decision to try and make flats and apartments in this city better than this long job. But that was a story right up the Herald's Boulevard. We loved it. We wrote about your national, your past schemes. We applauded you for your past. We wrote, God knows me, we wrote about the second checking room. What a great thing to say from here. And, and you know, I was one of the people who wrote story after story about the I mean, you may have wanted more attention. You may have wanted, <laughs> you may have wanted a, an even more, I mean, they always thought you would be good in politics and you just confirmed. <laughs> I would be appalling in politics, completely appalling. Um, I've been on a, a roller coaster here. Uh, Try to sit on this chair. It's really interesting. Uh, if you come from, from a completely different world, which might seem surreal to you, because only one side decides uh, what the news is going to be. Uh, what, what I just experienced uh, was probably the best tour into the domestic news toilet uh, one can have. Thank you. The best tour? Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, you really haven't started. We'll <laughs> 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 really get going. And I mean, I must, mother, I must explain. Um, the comparison of the Paramount of the perhaps it's Where you can still no longer eat the fish, which is caught north of the Harbour Bridge, west of the Harbour Bridge. But God knows it's cleaner than it was. Um, uh, but the comparison but that the is, is, it is, there would be few urban waterways, urban waterways, the, the few source urban runoff in the world, the city of 4 million people, with better water quality than, than we've got here. So you would take advantage. Of my being from another country. You know, what a disgraceful comparison. Now, I've won this argument because I've been doing it. 
reforms of that attracted minimal media interest because because the sausage roll won out. The sausage roll won out. Oh, yeah, and the people
but it takes place through radio and TV and the print. And if you want to be in the business of political leadership, you should be as good as you possibly can at making your case through the media. And that means when part of the media ganged up on you, you've got to balance it by using other parts of the media to reach the public. The, the business. Yeah, yeah, well, so you should be quiet writing a course. I've only been on a course when I'm posed for the equestrian statues to be built for my own. They do have been announced and they are yet to be seen. And I understand that statue will replace the one of Edward VII. They have reached it. I'm going to turn things around for a does this press that you describe in Russia, this um, fragmented but enormously active um, press, does it actually have an impact on government? Does it work to discipline, to discipline or to make government better? Well, occasionally, but um, there are rare, rare cases when um, reports pull together and uh, try to get some down the chain. Uh, quite a One part of the 
West is not giving up the story as they want, then they work on the other side that does. So there is a part of the press that is very blind to the power, that the, the party that's in power, and uh, the ones who don't Thank God that doesn't happen here. In the gulag of news entries, are you as confident these oh, days? I feel you're at least from the gulag. I'm a free citizen. Do you think, well, you think the gulag itself is as confident as it once was that it could get the political outcomes it desired? A difficult question. Uh, I think the, the nature of the, of the media these days and the sort of diffusion of power um, is a real challenge for the Murdoch press. I mean, they used to uh, have enormous influence setting agendas, scaring politicians, whether at the uh, city level of one newspaper town. Uh, the Australian in having you know, fantastic uh, access to the Prime Minister, whether it was Rudd or whether it was uh, uh, Tony Abbott. And there are many, many other outlets, there are many other ways of doing, uh, of doing politics. And, and these days, you know, what's more apparent to me now is we've, we've moved to newspapers in particular who are picking sides rather than in reporting you know, when I started in journalism, the newspapers saw themselves as a sort of a function of the Majesty's loyal opposition to whoever was in power. And these days, in their hunt for audience, in the lack of resourcing that newspapers now have, they've decided not to pitch their product at the broadest audience possible. They pick their segments and with that comes a whole range of, of uh, deviations, prejudices, um, ignoring things, pushing things, in that anticipation that we've got to give our readers the news that they want to read rather than, well, this is how it is, it's un as unpleasant as it happens to be. And it's done in as much as journalism, Newspapers are really struggling for their audiences now, and they've decided this is the way forward for them. Bob, do you reckon these limited have still got the class of hand? Do you think somebody like Alan Jones still has the class he had? He's still got the, the crown status of the editor of an afternoon newspaper having the gold that the premium would take seriously. Yeah, a man or an actor would take seriously what was on the front page of the Sun of the Mirror and the splat on his desk um, at 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, I, I think the diversity is an interesting opportunity for politicians. I, I can't understand politicians whinging about the demands of a 24-hour news cycle. If you find that tough, you're in the wrong business. Uh, this, this is how it works at Herald. Not, not the Murdoch press in this case, uh, sort of trapped me for the front page leader. When I was out of politics, I, I attended a couple of meetings for the routine runner drug policy at this campus. And when it produced its report, I'd been 
translated into the gold coins. And the report advocated gold's decriminalization or legalization of drugs. So the Hill had on the front page, a foreign minister was part of this discussion. As if I were a Timothy Leary advocate. Uh, in fact, I participated in a group with, I mean, I, I was making a case about the use of police resources. I wasn't an advocate of wholesale decriminalization anyway. I was drawing on my experiences in government as a medical supervisor, injecting women, what kind of sort. Um, okay, a beat up on the front page, how do you deal with it? With the 24 hour media, you just arrive after breakfast at Parliament House and walk into two, uh, the three TV studios. And you do one interview after the other. Easy figures. ABC 24 hours, Sky, and someone else. And you say, and this is, this is political communication, you say, it's not my position. My position is police resources ought to be used intelligently, and having police and sniffing dogs on railway stations or outside nightclubs and clubs is not an intelligent use of police resources. My position is simply that we shouldn't be after personal use qualities of these substances, but take a different approach in both rehabilitation, uh, cautions, and all the rest. It's just beautiful. You get to explain in a sit-down interview the subtleties of a policy, what your position is and what it isn't. And you can do that and extract the poison from the front page email because you've got a 24-hour lead. Julia got that wrong. She was hit, oh, your foreign minister has been part of the group that's advocating wholesale drug change. And she, she said, there'll be no change in drug policy under my prime ministership, my position on same-sex marriage. I believe there is between man and woman. You know, it's more intelligent than that. And 24-hour media enables you to sit and duck, or as a third of the world, it was the most wonderful part of the political leader's job. An ongoing conversation with the elected to say, no, I believe this, not that, this would work, this wouldn't work. And in no more than three minutes, have everyone listening to you on the TV or radio think, that's a non-unreasonable position. The idea you've got to close it down with one sentence, ruling it out, denies the opportunity to stop with its free one contact with your electorate, through the media, when it's easier by a 24 hour nature. Perfect, perfect close to your audience. There are a couple of roving microphones here with a quarter an hour. Um, let's, let's hear from you what you would like to ask this panel. Um, can we bring the lights up in the auditorium a little bit more so that we can see who is talking to us? Right, over there. Thanks. Um, uh, Bob, you mentioned that the uh, uh, sorry, you were deeply cynical about the uh, power, the contemporary power to um, convey policy. Um, I'd just like to give um, three examples of the power of the... Of, of, of these, really, these are questions, please. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm 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 the power of quick wit to convey policy, even, even philosophy, for God's sake, in a, in a three sentence image and in something that just gets people rolling in the office. 
came out of this smile and then and, 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 and you have a heart. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, think of, of King's wonderful inventions. Uh, to, to, to Houston, for example, uh, Houston asked me a question about how, what happened to those other people? And King standing there and pointing to it and saying, because I wanted to use slowly. Or King saying, King saying, um, King, they can communicate a powerful political message. That is, if you vote for Labour governor, if you vote for the Prime Minister, don't think in the Senate we're going to block Houston's GST. You vote us out and get the GST. That my hardest moment when King said that at question time. And yes, it was done with a full flavour of Chris Gunn and, and, and humour. And the key humour was, was sometimes on the border of being outrageous. Sometimes it worked, <laughs> it worked beautifully. And my advice to political communicators today, but so more, I'm sure, would be to think of the joke. Paul Bob Ellis, as a part of the on my staff group, I, and one of the jokes he said about him, I give him credit after him, by his memory, is that an irritating, an irritating front bencher on the liberal side who had a very grating voice, it's sort of a Christopher Pine of the state of Carmen. And and Alice served up this line, he said, refer to me as the virtual cool. And that's all it looked like. It was just a, a death intervention. And uh, why don't politicians use humour in this ongoing battle to beat the media in getting their cats to talk? Up the back. Up the back white shirt followed by up the back creation. Hi. Um, we're talking about the impact that the 24-hour media cycle does have, but one of the things that has also done is allow politicians to directly access their audience and to actually circumvent the media as that traditional gatekeeper. So, you know, things like streaming a, a press conference direct on Facebook or, you know, things of that nature. What do you think of those sorts of practices and where do you see that direct contact heading in the future? We're delivering at least sales interviews. Um, well, we would have had half a dozen by now with Liverpool's Prime Minister serve up typical challenging questions. The quality of a lot of the commentary in the media is first class in Australia. I, I referred to, I mentioned to you when we were chatting earlier, uh, Paul Kelly's analysis of the submarine decision. In the, in the Australian debate. It, it's useful to dwell on things that remain strengths. And I'm sure you agree with me that about the sales interviews, for example, but a lot, a lot, a lot of the very good comments we still have in the media influence the other journalists, the journalists of the electronic media. I think style, I think, I think um, those, those key interviewers on style do a job superior to what we see on CNN and Fox. They're, 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 they're razor sharp. They're razor sharp. I think of the half dozen 
example, but I think it's useful to be positive about something here. My regret, I guess the regret that due to David Thomas is that the way we down we are losing. There's a danger of losing that expertise. Australian democracy is well served by our media at the best. It really is. I don't want to leave negativity hanging in the air as my solution thinks. I think you know one of the things we've been talking about is you know only a politician can find the right words, if only they can find the right platform, if only they can get the right interview to tell the story. One of the things we've kind of skirted around, I think I just alluded to um, in passing when I went through, was just that people no longer believe the messenger. They don't they no longer believe what the politician is telling them. There's this huge trust deficit because they've heard the announceable or the promise hasn't been delivered or you know the system's broken in that way. So it's no longer just that you know people are now getting fed up with governments in a, in, in a shorter time frame. Something's broken in terms of the way we do our politics, not only the way we report it. And that's the thing that, that remains the challenge. Into that breach, how does a Bill Shorten or a Malcolm Turnbull communicate? So, you know, it's not just the wonderful words or the humour or the ability to keep talking and convincing that Bob was fantastic at in uh, New South Wales, but it's to reconnect with, with voters and to kind of have them trust you again. I think that's a much bigger challenge and that's part of the corrosive aspect of announcements and spin and all these other things that we have is that that transference, that believability just doesn't seem to be there. Um, our politicians find it easier to get around the media and speak directly to people. Well, we had a prime minister in the previous government never spoke. Uh, he was extremely silent. Uh, most of the jokes were made about that. The new Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, decided as soon as he became Prime Minister, he announced that the media will no longer set the agenda. The government will set the agenda. So therefore, he has gives, given, uh, given interviews only to those journalists who he thinks will ask favorable Russian leaders can just demand to speak directly to people. No. 
Uh, has he been talking on camera before? Um, I would like to direct a question at Pamela and Madhu. 
I think the 20th century was the century of Western definitions of press freedom. The 21st century is going to be the century in which BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, these countries are emerging as the, the new players, the new providers of news and information to the world. So I'm interested to know, Anna and Martin, what does press freedom mean to you? When was the day of uh, press freedom? The day before yesterday, just this week. Russia is ranked as uh, 148 countries by the uh, report of the Gulf Borders, uh, out of 180 countries. So, journalists are being murdered um, or taken. And I get exhausted from the front lines, but it is very difficult still to come um, to get into that report, especially today. You need to make a choice. Either you make money or you, you work for free uh, for some online publication. That is independent, but doesn't pay much. Uh, freedom of press means a lot to me because uh, I love friends uh, who were assassinated for uh, doing this job. This is a serious issue. And um, one of our boys was in jail detained in Azerbaijan for, I guess, for corruption. She was. Uh, recipient of uh, a war for courage. I was last year and she was uh, here in Poland. And I uh, was uh, given seven and a half years in prison in Azerbaijan for writing stories about corruption. So um, this is a serious job and uh, we are working hard to get the true stories in this Well, um, in India, if you say of any situation or circumstance, do opposite things, they're usually true. So, women are suppressed, yes, but they're extremely powerful women, running the media, running corporations, running the shipping industry. So, that's an example of how the press is also. There is suppression of press, there is self-censorship out of fear because the government does it in subterranean ways, using instruments of democracy which are untraceable and they can harass journalists. But there's also great freedom. So we do write as much as we can. Uh, sometimes it's a little difficult because if you're sitting too close to home, it can happen that uh, I find those journalists, as I said yesterday, that they're very brave about themselves, but when you know that your children, your children who are working, uh, your husband, your family, your parents, will be harassed in their places of work or they'll be raised in their homes, you back off a little bit. So there is, uh, yes, great freedom, we still have to, with one of the big debates that has been around for the last six months, and I was in a very noisy debate at the Jaipur Literature Festival, which I, if you want to have a good laugh, you can Google that on YouTube, YouTube Jaipur Literature Festival, Freedom of Expression Debate. Um, there, are, there is a section of people who believe there is great freedom of expression, there is a section of, large section of people who believe there isn't, and then there is another section of people who believe there shouldn't be. So it's a very noisy country, what can I tell you? <laughs> and at that point, will you please all join me in thanking all of our <laughs> 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 <laughs>